Now, that brings us to the fourth chapter. And we have here, Israel is punished for past iniquity. And we are going to see then in chapter 5, Israel will be punished in the future for iniquity. And the warning is given to them. Now, this man Amos directs his message, and it's scathing denunciation and judgment of the northern kingdom of Israel. Will you listen to him here? This is sarcasm that was really cutting and biting. This man now is really speaking to this nation, trying to call them back to God. He says, "...hear this word, ye cows," instead of kine, it should be cows. A kine is a cow. "...hear this word, ye cows of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their masters, Bring and let us drink." Now, here again is the third mention of drink being one of the sins that caused the downfall of this people. But not only that, what does he mean by ye cows of Bashan? And will you notice this very carefully now? Bashan, by the way, is that territory that's east of the Jordan River. It's between Mount Hermon and the mountains of Gilead. That is, the land of Gilead where the three tribes were. This is where the northern kingdom is part of their territory. Now, the kind of Bashan, the cows, they were noted actually for their strong appearance and sleek appearance. They were well-fed because the area in that section of the country, it was very lush, by the way. Now, what does he mean? Who is he calling cows of Bashan? There are those that believe that he's speaking to the women who were living in luxury, well-fed, well-taken-care-of, well-dressed, well-groomed. And because they could enjoy this wealth and luxury, why, it meant that the poor was oppressed and that the needy were crushed down. And this was done to satisfy the luxury of these women. Well, it is feminine. I grant that. But I think he's also speaking to the rulers. Now, somebody says, why does he use the feminine? Well, don't you know? This crowd up here were a group of homosexuals. Read the first chapter of Romans. This is the thing that God judges. And we're living in a nation today that are now making laws that permit homosexuals to get married, of all things. Did you know that Nero, they call him a mad king? Nero was not mad. He was a homosexual. He had a palace of over a hundred rooms, and one separate room in that palace was given over to the basest kind of deviation of sex that is imaginable. It was given over to the satisfying of his homosexual craving. May I say, when a nation starts down, homosexuality becomes a very prominent sort of thing. Now, I'm going to hear from this, but 
I don't mind that. We've been hearing recently that across this country today, there is a ring of this type of thing, and it will bring any nation down. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And believe me, he calls them a bunch of well-fed cows. And they were the ones that were ruling these people, the rich that were pressing these people down. What a horrible, awful picture this is. And my friend, you can bring it up to date if it was true in Israel. It's certainly true in our land today. We need an Amos today in this land. Now, this is the first verse of the fourth chapter, and he's just now getting started. I tell you, this man is giving that nation ample opportunity to turn to God before they go into captivity. God gave them warning. He always did that. And I think our nation is getting a warning today. Now, verse 2. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the days shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now, we've seen that used before. Back in the 38th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, God said concerning Gog, which we have identified as Russia, God says, I'll put hooks in your jaws and bring you down into that land. And he intends to do it. There are certainly some strong hooks in the jaws of Russia today that cause them to look to the south. But we're not going into that here. I just call attention to the fact God says to these people, already you're hooked. Not hooked maybe on drugs, but you're hooked on iniquity and on sin and disobeying me and I have already put hooks in your jaws, and I'm ready to take you out of the land. Judgment is coming. Now, verse 3, And ye shall go out at the breaches every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Now, God says, if you think because you are rich, or you are a ruler, and you're living in a palace, that somehow or another you are going to be safe. Well, you're not. God says, I intend to reach in there and take you out into captivity. And when Assyria finally came and took them into captivity, the king went along also. And that was true also of the southern kingdom. Now, verse 4. Now we've come to a most interesting verse here. It's a tremendous verse. Verses 4 and 5. He says, "'Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings for so ye love to do. O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God.'" Now, I'm sure that you recognize that this man here is using biting and bitter sarcasm. And he actually is inviting them to come to Bethel, a place of worship. That was the place where they went to worship the golden calf. And he says, come on up to Bethel and transgress. And at Gilgal, now Gilgal, it means circle, 
it means to roll along. And it was the place, the first place Israel came to when they crossed the Jordan River under Joshua. And that became a sacred place to them. And later on, it became a center of idolatry. Now again, it's the center of idolatry. And he says, and also come to Gilgal, and you multiply transgressions there. Now, you're not supposed to go to church in order to sin. That's the very opposite of that. And here he's saying, come to Bethel and transgress. And I trust that you recognize that this is pungent satire, that it's a taunting rebuke, that it is indeed an ironical and ridiculous statement that he is making here concerning these people. And he's saying, come on up to Bethel. He's inviting them up there and saying, and when you get here, you sin, you transgress. You know that it is sometimes dangerous to go to church. The devil goes to church. You say, you sure about that? Yes, I think he's up bright and early on Sunday morning and where these men are teaching and preaching the Bible. He's doing everything he can to get in there and wreck their work, by the way. That's the reason you ought to pray for a Bible-preaching and Bible-teaching pastor today. He already has taken over certain churches. Liberalism has taken over, and he doesn't worry about those places anymore. Naturally, he doesn't at all, but he does worry about these places where they're alive where the Word of God is being given out. And there's a danger of you going even there and sinning. You say, how do you know that? Do you recall that when our Lord took those twelve men yonder in the upper room? And if there ever was a sacred spot, if there ever was a sacred moment, and do you know who was there and he wasn't even invited Satan, having entered in of the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. The devil got into the upper room. Now, he had to walk in on the legs of Judas Iscariot, but he got there. And sometimes he walks into our so-called conservative fundamental churches on the legs of some deacon or some Sunday school teacher or some member. May I say to you, it's tragic not to recognize our enemy and to be ignorant of his devices today. And so they were coming. They were very pious. And when they got there, they offered up a thanksgiving with leaven. Now, you may think it's strange that they offered up a thanksgiving with leaven. But some of you will recall when we were back in the book of Leviticus, I called attention in two places to the fact that leaven was used in offerings. Actually, on the day of Pentecost, the meal offering had leaven in it that day. And you know why? That offering and Pentecost represents the church. And there never has been a church yet that there wasn't just a little leaven in it. And leaven is always the principle of evil. Our Lord made that clear. It's evil doctrine, wrong doctrine, evil life. It can be any of these things, and it gets in 
to the church. And you find leaven in that offering. And then when they made a thanksgiving offering in Leviticus, the seventh chapter, and I think I ought to turn and read verses 12 and 13 here. He says, "...if he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil." and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Now, this is the Godward side of the offering. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has made peace with God for us. So here in this peace offering, why we find that there's no leaven in the first offering that's made. Paul says in Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, and not by our works, because we'd never be justified, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's that side of it. Now, here is the manward side. Here is where I come and offer myself, where you come and offer yourself to God. Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering now. This is for the man that he is offering himself leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. So you and I, when we go through this ritual of the dedication of our lives to God, and we sometimes call it a consecration service, which is misnamed, but actually we never present ourselves perfect. That's just something out of the question. Now, if you think that you can present yourself perfect to God and you're waiting for that day, you're going to wait a long time because you'll never reach that. Leaven was included in that. And I think it's significant that leaven is mentioned here. And you know why? Because this prophet Amos, and say for a country preacher, he has a lot on the ball, don't you think, friends? He is an outstanding minister of the gospel for that day, but his was judgment. And he says with great emphasis, you come with a thanksgiving that has leaven in it. He doesn't even mention the unleavened. Why? Because they are totally removed from the living and true God. Therefore, the only thing they can do is offer evil to God, and God won't accept that at all. And I think this is one of the most tremendous statements, and don't miss it. Now, I find that a great many people miss satire and a little sarcasm. Now, I'm sorry that I indulge in it. My wife thinks I ought not to, but I enjoy indulging in it from time to time. Now, some time ago, when we were in the epistle to the Hebrews, you will recall that I offered a little book, and we'd still offer it to anyone that wanted it, on the authorship of Hebrews. Now, it's a little book I attempted to write as a seminary student in a scholarly manner. (laughs) But that's when I thought I knew it all, and I found out since I don't. But at that time, why, I took the position and do today that Paul wrote Hebrews, and I felt like I offered some good reasons for it. In fact, I thought I solved the problem, but apparently I didn't because they still argue about who wrote Hebrews today. And then on the radio, I gave a very facetious answer. I said, I don't have time to go into the details of it, 
But I said, I will give you this one. I said, now, if Paul didn't write Hebrews, that would mean he only wrote 13 epistles. And do you think he would stop with that unlucky number? He must then have written Hebrews to make it 14. Well, do you know that several people took me seriously? And I got a letter from a man. It was about 12 to 15 pages, closely typewritten, not only rebuking me, but trying to show me that that was a very unscriptural answer that I gave, and that I was dealing in superstition, that I ought to go back on the radio and explain to people that I was leading many astray. May I say to you, if you took me seriously, I want to correct that. I was merely being facetious. Now, I hope you'll understand the prophet Amos when he says to come to Gilgal to transgress. He's not asking people to sin, but in the most bitter and biting sarcasm that is imaginable, he says, that's what you do when you come up to Gilgal and up to Bethel. You come up to sin, not really to worship God. And today, it might be well next Sunday morning when you put on your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes to get down on your knees and ask God about the condition of your heart. Are you taking a new heart to church? Are you taking a clean heart to church? Are you taking lips that are not going to speak anything that would hurt the cause of Christ? May I say to you, this is something that's very important and very pertinent even for our day. You know, this man, Amos, I hope you're falling in love with him. If I was still a pastor and he was still around, I'd invite him to my church to preach. Because I think the church today needs ministers like this. There are some men that just preach on comfort. Nice little messages on how to comfort and work out your problems. Somebody needs to say something very strong about sin in people's hearts today. And that is true out of the church. It's true in the church. It's true with your heart and my heart. The biggest problem you and I have to overcome today is the matter of sin in our lives. And there's no use going to church and try to cover it up and go through some little course or attend some little conference and come back and say, oh, we were blessed. We're walking on the mountaintop. Well, wonderful if you are. But my friend, did you really come back to the Word of God? Did you have a confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ that was meaningful? Those are the things that are important. Now let's move on. In verse 6, he says, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord." Now, cleanness of teeth doesn't mean that he had given them a panna or gleam toothpaste, nor had he sent them to a dentist. The reason they had clean teeth was they didn't have anything to eat. God had judged them with a famine that had not waked them up. And he says, "...and lack of bread in all your places, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord." Again and again, God repeats this 
phrase here, and you have not returned unto me. Now notice, and he says, and also I have withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. And that is fatal if it didn't come at that time. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece upon which it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water. In other words, they had to go away to another city to get water. But they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Again, he says, I'm the one that controls the rainfall. And some of us think the weatherman does it, but he doesn't. God still controls the rainfall. And he says, I judged you. And you didn't listen. You didn't get the message. You didn't return to me. And now he says in verse 9, I have smitten you with blight and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increase. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. God says, I sent that to you as a judgment, hoping that it would cause you to turn back to me. And it didn't. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young man have I slain with a sword, and have taken away your horses, and I have made the stench of your camps to come up under your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Again and again God repeats this, and he says, These are things I sent to you. I accept responsibility. I judge you with these things that are light. They weren't too severe. They were enough, though. They were serious. They were enough to cause you to return to me, but you didn't return to me. We're going to have to leave off right there, pick up there next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now we have the next plague given here, and it's in verse 11. He says, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were like a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now, actually, there are those that think this here is sort of a summation of the other plagues. Well, frankly, I rather doubt that. What I think was taking place at this time, in fact, I know was taking place, and you'll find that gives a background to the book of Jonah, because he was a prophet in the north, yet he was sent up to Nineveh. And at this time, the Assyrian was making forays down in the kingdom of the north and would strike here and there and the other place and would take the entire community, wherever it was, into captivity. Now, God was just permitting the Assyrian, like a bird, to peck here and there. And then they didn't get the warning. They at least didn't accept it. And they continued on in their evil way. Now, in verse 12, we read, Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Now, he doesn't tell them here what he's going to do. He says, here, I'm going to do this unto you, and because I will do this unto thee. Well, of all things, it's going to be a surprise. 
and it was the Assyrian captivity. That is, Assyria came down upon them suddenly and took them away into captivity. In other words, they just did not believe God. And the interesting thing is here, though, that he goes beyond these judgments and says, "...prepare to meet thy God, O Israel." Because when Assyria came down, they didn't take all the people into captivity. They left a few, as we shall see in the next chapter, but many of them were slain. And that means that they were to meet God in death. And that is something that every individual will have to do, is to meet God in death. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. And that is something that is a message to every individual today. A friend of mine that God had dealt with very definitely because of the sin that was in his life. He told me the story and how God had dealt with him. And the judgment that had come upon him was rather severe. It was something that a man can bear, but it certainly was severe. And I was sympathizing with him about it, naturally. And he said to me, he says, McGee, that's not the thing that disturbs me, the judgment that has come upon me. He said, I yet have to stand before God. And he says, I tremble. Well, I said, you know, Vernon McGee's going to have to stand before God. And I said, if I stood there as I am, I'd be frightened to death. But I'm not going to stand there as Vernon McGee. I'm in Christ, and God is going to see Christ. And I've been made acceptable in the Beloved. And he said to me, he said, yes, that's the only comfort that I have today for the life that I've lived. Well, my friend, that's a message for many of you listening in today. Prepare to meet thy God. Suppose right this moment you went into the presence of God, and some of you will be going there shortly, including the speaker. We may not be around too much longer. We do hope to finish this program, that is, the five-year program, and we finish this year. Then after that, I'm not asking the Lord for more time, although I'd like to have it, but I did want to finish the five-year program. But suppose that in the next few minutes you were to be in God's presence. What about it, friend? This life is past. Things down here that were important are no longer important, I can tell you that. This life down here has now become meaningless as to any purpose because you're out of it. You're through. You've finished. And you're in God's presence now. You maybe live to please people, tried to keep up with the Joneses. But that's ended now. You're in his presence. How are you going to stand before him? Don't you know that you can't stand in your own strength, your own life, your own character? You and I haven't anything to offer to him at all. We are bankrupt there. We were dead in trespasses and sin. And now we stand before him. The only way that you and I can stand there is in Christ. He was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification 
that you and I might stand before him justified. Why? Because we're such nice, good little folk? We are not. We're sinners. We stand before him because he was delivered for our offenses. He paid the penalty. Now, we stand before him in the righteousness of Christ. And that, my friends, is the only basis that we can stand before him. This is a tremendous passage. Say again, do you mind me saying that Amos is one of the great preachers? I can't think of a greater preacher than this man. And he was from the country. He was a country boy. Now, listen to him in verse 13. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and created the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought, who maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is one of the most majestic, one of the most awe-inspiring statements that you will find anywhere. And it presents him here as the omnipotent, the omniscient, and the omnipresent God. He is the creator. He is the omnipotent God. He has all power. He formed the mountains and created the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought. He is omniscient. He knows your thought afar off. And then he is omnipresent. It says he treadeth upon the high places of the earth. No matter where you go... Even if you go to the moon, you didn't get away from him, friends, and you cannot escape him. He knows you today. He is the omniscient, the omnipotent God, and he knows all about you. You and I have been able to keep up a pretty good front, haven't we? We've made our neighbors think we're pretty nice folk. We've made the church members think that we're decent. We've made everybody around us with whom we work think that we are all right. We may even make our wives think that we're very fine fellows. But you know, up yonder in heaven, how the thing is, the psalmist, you'll recall when we were in the Psalms, in Psalm 90, verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. May I say to you that God knows you, and he knows me today. There's no use playing church anymore. There's no use keeping up the front, my friend. You just well go to him and turn yourself in. The FBI may not be on to you, and the police may not yet have caught up with you, but God already knows. I remember, and I can still hear Dr. Chaffer saying in class relative to this verse, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. He said, Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. He knows all about you. And he knew all about this nation and about these people. Now we come to chapter 5 here. And in chapter 5, Israel will be punished in the future for her iniquity. Now, 
Will you listen to this as we begin in these first verses here? God pleads with them to seek him so that judgment could be averted. Now, it is true that there seemed to be a finality at the end of the last chapter, but that was what God had done in the past. They were warning. And as long as he did not bring that final stroke of judgment, which was their captivity, then there was hope for them. Now, will you listen to him in verse 1 of chapter 5? Hear this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. Now, this is a dirge that he's taking up. It's as it were, he's singing a funeral song. It's a very sad one now. And he speaks like this, and now it's with tenderness. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Now, you remember that when Hosea began his prophecy, he had an experience in the home. He'd married a harlot. And now God sent him out to speak to the nation, and he's saying to the northern kingdom, you're a harlot, but God still loves you. Now, here, Amos says, you were a virgin. God espoused you to himself. And that's the picture of every believer today. Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, I espoused you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And when we came to him, our sins are all forgiven, and we start new with him. But how about it, friend? How's it been going the past few years? Have you done what Israel did? Have you played the harlot, turned away from him, and have been led astray into the world and into the things of the flesh? And as the devil put a ring in your nose and leading you around like a pig that has a ring in his snout that's being led around? A great many, even Christians, are like that today. This is a sad funeral dirge, you see. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There's none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. You see why he said, prepare to meet your God. Look at the number that are to be slain. And that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. And those are the ones that will be left back in the land. And then the great company, a percentage of them were slain. Now, listen to him. This is, as it were, a last call to the nation. Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. The invitation is still open. The word had gone out. Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. And by the way, you can't find Bethel today. I've had two different spots pointed out to me by guides back there, and I'm not sure just where it is. 
the location, you can pretty well know that is the area, but to be able to pinpoint it seems to be a problem. And did you notice he told them not to even go as far south as Beersheba. But when he talks about the two Gilgal and Bethel are coming to nothing, he doesn't mention Beersheba. Why? Because Beersheba will go in captivity over a hundred years later when the southern kingdom goes into captivity. But now Gilgal and Bethel will come to nothing. They go into captivity. Now he says, though, here, there's still hope for you. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and ye shall live. What a wonderful invitation it is. And he says, Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. In other words, God says, If you don't turn to me, then I will have to judge you. But notice as he goes on, he says here, and I pick up now in verse 7, "...ye who turn justice to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth." Now, friends, we're in an area where the liberal years ago used to make a great deal of this section of the Scripture. He presented a work salvation, and he found justification for it here. Well, unfortunately, he didn't consider the entire message, because the condition of these people was a condition of which they were going through the form of worship that God had prescribed. They were offering sacrifices, and they were going through a ritual that God had given to them. But you see, their lives did not commend their profession. In other words, their practice did not equal the profession that they made. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said years ago that he was more afraid of the blasphemy of the secular than he was of the blasphemy of the sanctuary. Now, a great many people think, oh, it's terrible, you know, if you don't just sit just right in church and you don't dare laugh and you must participate. And if you go through all the forms and ritual, you're very pious. But if you don't do that, why, it's like blasphemy to do something in the sanctuary that isn't according to the Mosaic system are today according to the ritual of the church. But my friend, I don't feel myself the danger's there. The danger is that the man that goes to church and sings the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, and then is living outside a life in which he is not honest, there's no justice, in his life whatsoever, and there's no righteousness in this man's life, then may I say that's the blasphemy of the secular or the blasphemy of the street. And that is the thing that God is condemning in these people. Not that a living faith in Christ is not essential. It's absolutely essential for your salvation to trust in Christ. But my friend... If you make a profession of trusting Christ, and then your life outside does not command the gospel at all, then may I say to you, 
There's not but one word, and it's a harsh word. But the Lord Jesus is the one who used it more than anyone else. He said to the religious rulers of his day, Ye hypocrites. That is his word. I didn't think of that one. He thought of it. He said, Ye hypocrites. And it is brazen hypocrisy today, either in the pulpit or in the pew, when statements are made and a profession is given and a protestation of our wonderful love for Christ and how we trust Him, and then go out and live a life that condemns the very gospel that we are supposed to be professing. That is the thing that he's talking about here, friends. And that is the thing that hurts today. A great many Christians do not want this mentioned because of the fact that they're very active in Christian work, but they're not very active living for the Lord on the outside. Their life in business, their social life is certainly not that. I had a man once, he was very active in the church. I don't think there was an organization in the church that he wasn't active in. And he got involved with a lady in the choir. And may I say to you, he dropped out for a time. And without making any amends, without apparently any change of life whatsoever, the man wanted to come back into active service. Well, I absolutely condemn that sort of thing, and I was made the guilty party because of it. May I say to you today, friends, this idea of making a profession and then not living up to it. Now, that is the thing that is basic in the message of Amos. You see, God had to bring this man way up from down south in the southern kingdom, way out in the country. He had to get a man down there that would give this kind of a message because those paid preachers up there in Bethel and Samaria, they're saying what the people want to say. Someone has made the statement, in fact, a leading Bible expositor made the statement several years ago. He says, the modern pulpit has become a sounding board for the thinking of the congregation. In other words... They are heaping to themselves teachers with itching ears. Their ears itch to hear something nice and sweet. And then they go up and pat the preacher on the back and tell him how sweet he is. And he's got itching ears and that scratches them, you know. And so it's like the old Egyptian game. You scratch my back and I'll scratch your back and we both will have a good time. And so that is the way that a great deal is carried on today in our churches. Liberalism has done it for years. And, of course, today we find it in many Christian. And when I say Christian, I mean conservative circles. And these people were insulted when this man even suggested that they were not very religious and very pious. Now, that is the thing that he's saying here. Now, listen to him again. He's not through with this. Verse 8, he says again, and it's God's gracious call. God is long-suffering. And God is lots more patient than I would be. And I found out that I need to learn to be patient with the patience of God. 
how long-suffering and patient he is. Now, seek him who maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, who calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. That is, it's God who makes the rain fall. Somebody says, oh, I know that it has to do with the law of hydrodynamics. And sure, but who made the law of hydrodynamics? Who is the one that pulls the water up out of the ocean and then puts it on a train? They call him clouds. And he moves them over by the wind. And when they get over in the right place, well, they turn loose and rain. Who is it that does that? Well, God's the one that's doing that, friends. And Amos says, the Lord is his name. He said, you've turned to these idols, and your life does not command your faith in a living God, and the living God is the Creator. And Orion, of course, is one of the many constellations in the heaven, and it was the one, of course, familiar to these people in that day. Verse 9, "...who strengtheneth the spoil against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly." Now, the one that rebukes in the gate would be a judge. You see, the courthouse of that day was the gate of the walled city. You will find all the way through Scripture, that's where the judges sat, was at the gate. That's where Boaz, you remember, got the other kinsmen at the gate of Bethlehem. And when Lot went down to Sodom, he got in politics down there, and you find him sitting in the gate. What is he doing there? Well, he was a judge. And so here we have the judge that was rebuking that which was wrong. He was the one that was hated. And therefore, most of the judges were very dishonest, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. When a judge insisted upon justice and upon that which is right, well, he became very unpopular. I'm not sure that human nature has changed very much. Now, will you notice verse 11? For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, they are the ones that do not get justice. I know that. I've been on that side of the line a long time. And ye take from him burdens of wheat, Ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. And those beautiful palaces that were built at Samaria are in ruins today. And they were destroyed shortly after this message was given. Been in ruins now for several thousand years, almost 3,000. Now, verse 12. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe. They turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. In other words, the poor cannot get justice in the court of that day. Has it changed today? Unless you're able, friends, to employ a very expensive lawyer, which means one that is clever and knows how to, you know, to get around the edge of the law without really breaking it, but sure do bend it up pretty well. And unless you can pay for that sort of thing, 
Why, you find out you have to pay right through the nose. And who is it that pays? Now, one of the reasons for repealing the death penalty was because the rich man could always escape the gas chamber or the electric chair. Now, I do not think that that was a legitimate reason, but the facts were true. The poor man, when he's found guilty, didn't stand a chance. The rich man could keep appealing the case, and it took him a long time to find his way to the jail. In fact, he never even got there in many cases. So that God takes notice of those things. And when there's not justice in a nation, you see, God has turned over to human government today to run this earth. And the nations of the earth are God's arrangement. But he holds them accountable. And when they fail, he removes them. Rome was removed from the scene. And we're going to talk about that later. But now let me move on here. Verse 13, Therefore the prudent shall keep silence at that time, for it's an evil time. In other words, a man in that day knows he can't get justice. And many good people were keeping quiet. And it was the prudent thing to do, because if he attempted to protest, it wouldn't do him a bit of good. And the tragedy of the hour in which we're living today is that we talk about the freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and freedom of speech. There's not much of that left today, because the press, the news media today, is definitely become a brainwashing agency. And it is true today that only that which has money can get a public hearing. And as a result, you do have a silent majority in this country because they know that their voice would not amount to anything at all. But we're in a tragic day. And that was the day Israel had come to. Verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. Again he calls upon them to turn to him, so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil. This is verse 15. Hate the evil, love the good, and establish justice in the gate, that is, in the courtroom, until the poor can get justice and not some liberal with some rich organization back of him, why, he can betray our government and escape. In fact, he's made a hero. But some poor fellow that is espousing an honest cause, he doesn't stand a chance, friends. God says here, hate the evil, love the good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Now, there's still hope for you, he says. It's slim, but there's hope for you. Now, in verse 16 here, he moves into another area. There is the warning of approaching judgment. And that, of course, is the day of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all the streets. They shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! And they shall call the farmer to mourning, and such as are skillful in lamentation to wailing. Why? And in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. 
the judgment of famine that we saw back in the last chapter, all of that was a warning. And it caused a great many people to very piously say, he puts it here as a woe, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. There are a great many people today who are saying, oh, if the Lord would come. And for them, it's nothing in the world but a pious sentiment. And for them, it's not going to be as pleasant as they think it's going to be. Now, I read, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Again, we have that expression, the day of the Lord. Joel is one of the first of the writing prophets, and he's the one that introduces that subject. And every one of the prophets after him has something to say about it. And we need to be very careful because I'm sure many of us always thought the day of the Lord was the millennium. I'll be very frank with you. I was taught that at the beginning, that the day of the Lord was the millennium. Well, Joel was very careful, and Amos now, who is the prophet in the northern kingdom, as Joel was in the southern, to make clear that the day of the Lord is not like its darkness. In other words, the day of the Lord begins with judgment and moves on to the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom down here upon this earth. Now, there are great many commentators, and I say a great many, I don't have too many on Joel, but I have several that feel like that the people were becoming rather cynical, and they are really ridiculing the day of the Lord. Now, I don't see that here at all. In fact, I don't see how that interpretation could possibly be true. I see it on the opposite side, that a great many of these people became very pious, You see, they were going through the ritual, the Mosaic ritual, but they were also worshiping idols. In other words, it was just religion to them. That is all that church-going is to a great many people today. There's nothing vital, nothing real, there's no reality to go through a ritual. And that's the reason so many church services are so dead, and I mean dead is because of the fact that you have there nothing in the world but a ritual that you're going through. Now, it may be beautiful, it may appeal to your eyes, it may appeal to your ears, but does it change your life? Is it transforming? Is it something that you take out with you into the marketplace that you can live by? There are a great many people, and I want you to hear this very carefully, and I'm saying it very carefully today. There are a great many people who are very pious today among those that are premillennial and pre-trib. We say, oh, if the Lord would only come. Well, do you really want him to come? Or are you using the rapture of the church as sort of an escape mechanism It is to get you out of your trouble down here. It's to deliver you from your trouble. It's like the fellow that I tell you about when I was in seminary. When we were studying Hebrew, and we'd come out from the dining room of the evening, and he'd look up. We had a hard Hebrew lesson for the next day, as well as a Greek lesson. 
and he would say, Oh, if the Lord would only come tonight. Well, what was he after? He didn't want to stay Hebrew. And I never shall forget when he graduated. He was to graduate one night. He was to get married the next night and then go on his honeymoon. And I never shall forget the night before graduation. He came out and he looked up and he says, I sure hope the Lord won't be coming now for several days. Well, my friend, may I say to you, I'm afraid a great many of us look at the rapture like that. This man, Amos, said, you pious folk that are just going through the religious ritual and you're worshiping idols. The day of the Lord is not something that you ought to desire because it's not light. It is a day of darkness and not light at all. You go through a great tribulation period when the day of the Lord comes. What you want to do is to jump into the millennium. Now, let me be very careful and say something to those of us today who believe the church will not go through the great tribulation period. My friends, some of us are going to think we got into it after we get to heaven. You know why? Will you listen to what Paul had to say? Now, I'm reading 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, "...wherefore we labor." that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Bema. This is not the great white throne at all. Here is where Christians come. For what reason? That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Is this salvation? No. Paul says there's no other foundation any man can lay. But you can build on that. And you can build with wood, hay, and stubble. You can build with gold and silver, precious stone. But every man's work, not his salvation, not his person, every man's work shall be tested by fire. Now, if any man's work survives the fire, he'll receive a ward. But suppose it doesn't. Paul says he'll be saved, but so is by fire. And that's the reason I make the statement oftentimes that a great many people, they're saved, I grant that, but they're going to smell like they were bought at a fire sale when they get to heaven because everything they did down here, they did in the flesh. They did it for some earthly reason, for some present satisfaction. And I want to be very frank and say this to you today that Vernon McGee, as he's getting toward the sunset, I'm no longer on the young side, like to kid myself sometimes to think I might be, but I want to say this to you very candidly. I'm wondering how I'm going to come out up there. You say, oh, you have the through the Bible, and so many say, I'm going to get a great reward. You don't know me like I know myself. If you did, you'd turn the radio off. Well, wait a minute, don't turn it off, because if I knew you like... You know yourself, I wouldn't want to talk to you. You see, friends, our life that we've lived down here as believers is to be tested today. And it's pious nonsense to run around today and pretend to be so interested in the coming of Christ. When some of us get to heaven, we'll think we didn't miss a great tribulation. Because notice what Paul said after he gave the statement 
that we'd all be tested at the bame of Christ. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I'm trying to persuade you today, friend, that when you appear in his presence, if you think that he's going to pin a nice little Sunday school medal on you because you didn't miss Sunday school for 15 years, I think you're wrong. I don't think that that's going to come up. I think that the life that you live in your home, your witness in your business, your social life, your contact with the opposite sex, these are the things that are going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. And the things that were done in the body down here. Do you want to go up there now? Have you got everything straightened out? Paul says if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. And that's the reason today I'm trying to keep everything confessed up. I'm running short accounts with the Lord today. I'm confessing everything. You know why? Because if I don't, he's going to straighten it out up there someday. When you lost your temper and you gave a wrong witness, and today you gossiped and said something about a believer, do you think that when you get in the presence of Christ that he's going to pat you on the back and say what a nice little fellow you are? He's going to straighten that out. Things have to be made right in heaven, friends. And that's the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. And believe me, Amos is putting it on the line. He says, cut out this nonsense you desire the day of the Lord. It's not light. It's darkness. There's a great tribulation you'll go through. And there is the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't think it's going to be as pleasant as some folk think it's going to be. Now, verse 19. As if a man, this man here... Amos, and I have to say again how I admire him. He's one of the most dramatic preachers that you have in the Scripture. He uses figurative language. He uses the idiom of the earth. He draws his illustrations from nature, and he makes striking statements. Now we're coming to one, and we've got quite a few more to follow. He says, "...as if a man did flee from a lion, and a bear met him." Here's a man that's out hunting, or in the woods, as probably Amos had been. And there's a lion down the trail back of him. And he starts around running the opposite direction, and now he sees a bear coming toward him. In other words, when you say that you want the Lord to come, and your motive is that you want to get out of your troubles down here, then it's sort of like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. I think that is our bromide that we use today. And now he's got another, or leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Well, suppose a man sees the lion coming and the bear from the opposite direction, and he takes out up over the hill, and he gets to his home, and he goes inside of his home, and it was made out of these rocks in that day. And he puts his hand up on the wall to sort of rest and get his breath. And here comes out a serpent and bit him. Well, it would have been better if the bear had got him or the lion had gotten him than to have the poison of the serpent in him. So he's saying here, you better be very sure about the life that you're living for God down here because salvation is not in jeopardy. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. But your sins as a believer 
if they're not dealt with down here, you don't make them right. He's going to make them right, friends. He has to do that. He's holy and righteous and just. And heaven is a place where things are right. And therefore, you and I'll have to be right when we get there. That is something a great many do not realize today. Now, verse 20, he says, "...shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it." You go through that period, and that was the period that is yet to come upon the nation Israel. It's a period, actually, of judgment, and we'll deal with it later in a more detailed fashion, but it's labeled the day of the Lord. But that doesn't end it, because in the day of the Lord, you have the second coming of Christ in the millennial kingdom here upon earth. Now, verse 21. He says, in speaking for God now, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not take delight in your solemn assemblies, Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thine harps. Now, here is the thing that he's saying that we have been repeating here. Back of these people going through the ritual were lives that were dishonest, and we're going to see the three national sins that that nation was guilty of. And it's the sins that have destroyed all nations, and they're sins that'll destroy our nation. But God's people need to recognize that their faith must be real, and faith is not fake or fable. It's reality. It's laying hold of a person And believing is not deceiving. A great many people say, well, if you believe, why, it's because you're blind. It's a blind faith. Well, if it's a blind faith, forget it, because God doesn't accept that. Faith has to have an effect upon the life. Faith without works is dead, James says, and that a living faith will produce that, and that we've been saved to produce good works. Paul says all of this is important. Now, these people, they were living lives of sin. They were engaged in idolatry, and yet they were going through all of this. And God says, I despise it. I have no use for it. Had you ever stopped to think that many of the song services that we think are so enthusiastic, you know, a group of people singing, a heart not in it, but a big mouth is in it, Do you think maybe God has accepted it? What do you suppose he would think if he came to my church or your church? What would be his viewpoint? Well, we better not deal with that. Now he says, But let justice run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chion, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Now, apparently the people in the wilderness, they went through a ritual. But when they would meet these heathen people, why, they wanted to take on their gods. And you find the worship of Moloch was where children were put in the arms of a red-hot idol. 
and made a sacrifice. And the screams of those children were terrible. But that was the human sacrifice. Now, God says, you can come to church on Sunday and go through the ritual of believing in me. But when you are worshiping Moloch during the week, when you are worshiping this idol of covetousness, when you go out after the almighty dollar, it was like Cardinal Woolsey. Remember when Henry VIII took away from him Hampton Court and was about to do away with him. Fortunately for Cardinal Woolsey, he died a natural death, but he wouldn't have had he lived. And on his deathbed, he said, if I had only served my God like I've served my king. And a great many Christians will have to say that on their deathbed. I have served the God of Moloch down here. I have served the idol of covetousness. I've served the idol of sin down here, the things of the flesh. I've worshipped those things. And I have not served my God. Now, friends, I don't care how sweet the music is going to be and what nice words the preacher will say at your funeral, but you and I are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to be very frank with you. That disturbs me somewhat. I want things straightened out down here as far as I'm concerned. Now, listen to him here. He says, verse 27, Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, that is, beyond Syria, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, you see, Israel is to be punished in the future. What will be this? They're to go into captivity, and they're to go into captivity beyond Damascus, and beyond Damascus was Nineveh. The Assyrian would take them into captivity. 